My name is Jim Farley, and this is Drive. Something very big is happening at Ford. We're gonna roll out our seventh generation of one of my favorite cars, the Mustang. We're gonna mix it up today. Instead of me asking the questions, I'm joined by the head of the Ford Archives, Ted Ryan, and together we're gonna take your questions about this iconic American car. Now, before we get started, Ted, I see you brought a whole box of things from the archives. So what's in the box? One of the fascinating things to me is that we don't know the date that it was called the Mustang, because in all the early clay photos and all the early documentation, it was called the Cougar. So I actually brought you a document from July of 1963, just a short nine months before the launch, where you can see that there's still conversation about calling it with a bird name, or perhaps even the Cougar or the Mustang. And that's the first time that you see Mustang associated with it. So I don't have an actual date, and it drives me nuts because as a historian, you wanna know the day, but it's fascinating to me that it was, it was a concept as much as a car at that point. And yeah, this is actually really interesting that you brought this because I remember we crowdsourced the Thunderbird name. And so there's a bit of a history at Ford where these names are a bit fluid until the very last moment. They are. I actually think that the Bronco is what caused it to be called the Mustang because oh. the stable of vehicles and the whole horsey Western theme, because at that point, they nailed down the Bronco right about the time of this memo. Must, must and Bronco concept. was marketed as, I remember, the Mustang of off-roaders, actually. It was, and Don Fry introduced uh, the Bronco as another pony to our stable. That's it. Yeah. Okay. So the, it kind of coming together, but we had this conflict of birds versus four-legged animals. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that the four-legged animal came about because if you think about it, the Mustang invented the pony class of cars, yes. and it was all because of that name. And the Mustang changed over time, becoming more performance and more about a fast-running horse versus maybe the Thunderbird 2. Yes, yeah. So anyway, you learn so much from these documents from the what, archives. What else do you have? Uh, the other one that I have, which is one of the probably most significant documents that we have in the archives, when people, this one actually, we keep it in a safe. It is the blue letter, mm -hmm. and you know, but the listeners don't, that any correspondence from an executive vice president or higher was printed on blue paper. It's like having an exclamation point on your email. And it's signed by Lee Iacocca. It's dated December 5th, 1962, and it launched the Mustang. So that document right there is why we have a Mustang at all. And it was to create a sporty, stylish, European-influenced car. Most people don't know the Mustang was actually influenced by European styling, but it was. But in a truly American way, was executed. Okay, well, I am so excited to read this because... Although I read it, it actually has a cover memo on the blue letter that I have never seen before. And I am like blown away with what I'm reading right now because it said the total investment to create the Mustang was $45 million, which today would be like maybe cover one fender. Yes. And we create a whole car. But the most amazing thing is 100% substitution. So we wouldn't sell any more cars at Ford because of the Mustang. And the financial planning number that we would capacitize the plant was 75,000 units a year. And I think we like made a million in a couple of years. We did. Like 
So holy cow, they were conservative. As early as August of 63, they understood that they had way undercalculated how many cars. And so they were begging for money to go up to 250,000 units. And in reality, we made 450,000 the first year and a million in the first two years. So here it is right here. So you said a million in the first two years? Yeah. So that half a million? Low side was 120,000 units. Most likely it was 150 and the high side was 165. Not 175, but 165, very specific number. And we sold a half a million. So much for corporate forecast. <laughs> yeah. And so much for people in the company kind of knowing what Mustang would become. Had his life of his own, really. And the key competitor was the Monza. Right. Corvair. <laughs> Which nobody even knows what it is anymore. And yeah. Everybody in the world knows what a Mustang is. If you see a Mustang on screen, on a video, you, you know instantly that it's a Mustang because it is stylish. It's a feeling as much as it is a car. Yeah. Would you like to take some listener questions? I would love to. Well, let's start with a question from Jackson in Louisville, Kentucky. Hello, Mr. Farley. I'm Jackson Oliver. And my question is, what is the difference between the 64 and the 65 Mustang? And why does everyone collect the 65? The 64 and a half Mustang was the first model year when we launched it. And there were some very modest changes between 64 and a half and 65. As I recall, we may have not launched with all the three different body types. We had the notchback, the convertible, and the fastback. We also came out with the GT. So there were variations I think we added in 65 that we didn't have in 64. I remember the very small chrome garnishment on the side of the vehicle may have been slightly different between 64 and a half and 65, but 66 became actually much different. What do you think, Ted? I think that you're correct. I think it's because this limited production of the first half year. And there, there are people that would die on the hill saying, no, it's actually a 65 Mustang because there's no such thing as a half year Mustang. Yeah. I was on a call the other day with two Ford people arguing back and forth. So <laughs> 64 and a half or 65. The, there were only a couple hundred thousand units built between April and December. And if you are looking for the first of something, those are the most desirable. Personally, I think the whole first year and a half you know, that 64 and a half, 65, they're all essentially about the same except for a few trim options. Do you think that when we launched at the World's Fair in New York in April, I wonder out loud if we kind of, you know, then had to make a half model year to kind of not just come out with it because all the dealers papered their walls. It was like a coordinated launch that no one had ever seen before. So April kind of started this enormous uh, it was a match that kind of started this enormous launch around around the world, but especially in the U.S. Is it, do you think the model year was tied to the fact that they wanted to do this in April at the World's Fair, and so they needed a way to bridge to the traditional model year change at that time, which was the autumn? Yeah, one hundred percent. They wanted it for the World's Fair, and they wanted it to be part of the whole. They re, at the New York World's Fair, the Ford Pavilion had cars that you got in to drive around. Well, after the Mustang came out, they switched them out so you're driving around in a Mustang as you go see the cool. thing. So it was all tied. We actually bought out TV. It's unbelievably, there were only three channels back there, and we bought the same time slot on all three all channels three to do That's the introductory cool. ad. So let me ask a different question, but it's related to April and 64 and a half. How the heck 
do we get a Mustang on the top of the Empire State Building for the launch? How did they do that <laughs> physically? Like It was, they measured the, this is a famous PR story. We actually put a Mustang on the top of the Empire State Building. They measured the elevators and they actually cut the vehicle to be able to fit in the elevators to be able to then reassemble them up on the roof of the Empire State Building. It was a famous publicity shot. Walter Hayes. Yes. Absolute genius. Okay, Jim, here's another one. Two related questions from Michael in Owasa, Oklahoma. What's your all-time favorite Mustang design? And from Leo in Austin, Texas. Other than your Mustang, what is your favorite Mustang? Yeah, I would go with kind of Carol Shelby's answer, which is the next one. <laughs> I just think Mustang just keeps getting better over time, not because I'm the head of the company, because I'm a Mustang fan, like forget my job as a CEO. And I just always like the progress. I always like seeing change. You know, I love the interior of the 67, 68. I love Brittany blue as a color. I love they went to that kind of blonde steering wheel color in 67. It was really beautiful. We didn't have wooden steering wheels before that. I mean, there are lots of different executions over the years, but that would be, and you know, your taste changes also. Like the cars that I really loved when I was younger were when we brought the five liter back in the mid eighties, that was like really exciting. But as I got older, I think I appreciated the design purity of the early ones. I think the most uh, aspirational example to me was definitely the GT350 in 65 when Carol went B production racing and we lightened the car and did all sorts of crazy things to it to make it a competitive race car. And why is that important and why I like that? It's because Mustang came out, it was not positioned as a fast performance car. Mm -hmm. So the first version of what I consider the Mustang today, the pony car, Ted, as you said, was that GT350. It was like, and it actually wasn't even invented by Ford. <laughs> it was Carroll Shelby kind of personalizing the car to make it competitive. And it actually turned out that we had a GT version and then we kept doing these kind of high performance Shelby versions. And then they, they became part of the ethos of Mustang and then actually became the Mustang. So to me, the genesis of the modern Mustang as a world's best performance coupe best-selling around the world, all came from that first 65 E350. My favorite is the 64 and a half convertible Wimbledon white or candy apple red. The one that you see in, in Goldfinger, the classic image of the Mustang, which, as Jim just said, wasn't a performance car. You know, you could get a V8 and white walls, but that wasn't truly performance. But to me, that's sort of the quintessential what the Mustang was. It's fascinating too, because the there was a speech given at the time that said that the Mustang was a market looking for a car. They're all these baby boomers and they're young and they right, were sporty right. and stylish. And right. For the first time, the big three yeah. gave them something they wanted and boy, yes. they gobbled it up and bought a million of them in two years. So that to me, it created, it was the Beatles of the car world. You know, it created I love this that. swell. It was the Beatles of the car world. That's exactly what it was. You're right. You know, they changed, it, it, it changed automotive history forever. And you know, sometimes in our business, just crazy stuff happens. Like we wound up winning Le Mans the next year and we had sold Mustang around the world at that point. So it, yeah, it was kind of a moment in time, wasn't it? it? You think about that particular decade for Ford, you've got the Mustang in 64, Bronco 65, Le Mans 66. I mean, Holy we were smokes. at the pinnacle Holy of smokes. the automotive world. 
At the same time, we're building NASA, you know, mission control at Johnson Space Center. But before that, we're a pretty practical brand, you know, pretty practical cars. And, Falcon and, is yeah. the ultimate practical car. Right. And that all kind of changed. The code name for the Mustang was the Special Falcon Project. Mm. It was just going to be another variation of our utilitarian car until they began to do the, this market research that said America wanted something sporty and stylish. When I joined the company, there was this iconic gentleman who wound up being the common part of most of the breakthrough vehicles from the 60s to the 80s, Hal Spurlick. And Hal Spurlick was a product planner, and he was the one who, I believe, proposed to take the Falcon platform and make a stylish. He was also the father of the K platform at Chrysler. He was the father of the first front-wheel drive Ford, the Fiesta in Europe. He was incredibly irreverent, independent-thinking man. And when I joined the company, he was the first person I met. Oh, wow. I actually did an oral history with him. He was he did. fascinating. Isn't he a fascinating? He's a fascinating And character. as busy today as he was back yeah. then. You looked and up minivan. He did the minivan. He did. That's one the whole kick car platform, yeah. the minivan, showed the prototype. The Ford people didn't like it. Lee Iacocca went to Chrysler. Lee Iacocca's a smart man. Lee Iacocca knows that a good product planner will make him a lot of money. He hires Hal Sperlick to go with them. Yeah. What does Hal Sperlick do? take the concept of the Ford minivan he proposed, that Ford poo-pooed, and created the Chrysler minivan, then used the platform for the K-Car sedan, and the rest is history, saved the company. Yeah, which is amazing. Yep, cool guy. So, yeah, I guess what we're saying is that there's people behind these cars. They don't just appear out of the ether. There's, like, people's creativity. And they put their jobs on the line. I mean, think about it. We had done the Edsel you know, right, a few right. short years before yes, the Mustang, and out true. of the ashes of the Edsel, where we asked all the wrong questions, right. all the wrong market research, and built the wrong car, came the Mustang because we asked the right questions and we built the right car. Okay, Jim, here's a question from Stephen in Canton, Michigan. As a former owner of an 89 Mustang GT and the current owner of a 20 Mustang GT, how will you maintain the historical Mustang heritage while taking advantage of the performance improvements of the future? That's a good question because we've globalized Mustang now. And so it sounds crazy, but the roof line of the car is incredibly important. That actual design feature makes it a vehicle that is acceptable around the world in Europe and Southeast Asia, like Australia. So actually the execution of the car is critically important for it to be successful. and. You know, that was only one of three body styles in the past. I think the thing that makes a Mustang to me when we walk into the design studio and we say, is it good enough? It'll be, does it look forward, but still be connected to the essence of the design purity of the first one? That's a very subjective thing, but it has to meet that criteria, number one. Number two, when you're behind the wheel, does it feel like we design the interior for the pure pleasure of driving? Like it's oriented towards the driver in an era where we don't do interiors like that anymore. They'd be considered in some classes selfish, too oriented to the driver. But that's a Mustang. The third thing is it's got to sound right. 
there is a Mustang sound. And Mustang sound has changed. Uh, Steve McQueen created it with Bullet, Sergeant Frank Bullet, with the 67, 68. And, you know, I'm sure that was totally modified by Warner Brothers. Probably didn't sound like the car at all or that was amplified. But there is a sound with Mustang that has to live. And, of course, it has to have that Detroit swagger in terms of its performance. Like when you pull up to a light, yeah, someone may challenge you to a race. And you better be fast enough. I think then the last one I would say, combination of color and specs and things like that, we have to get the idea of American freedom and self-expression, right? So like there's no one Mustang. Everyone kind of does it different, like, like a Harley almost. And we have to get the choices that the customer will go through right so that everyone kind of feels like they have their own Mustang. And that means that the choices have to be kind of outspoken because they're not for everyone. That'd be the criteria I think we would agree to. I would say everything that Jim <laughs> just said, plus it has to look fast, even standing still. There you go. It has to look like a Mustang. And if you buy a Mustang, you're buying into the sense of feeling of exploration, the open road, how you can drive. So you're buying into the feeling. So it has to, you have to match the look, you know, the color, everything else uh, to that feeling that you're looking for. Let's take another question. Jim, here's one from Garrett in Shreveport, Louisiana. Why make a Mustang that the aftermarket can't modify and tune? Seems like hot rods are truly dead. Oh, my God. Thank you for your question, but I couldn't disagree you more. I would say that there have never been more options to modify a Mustang than right now. And we work really hard to include the aftermarket in the development of the car. Like they're measuring, they're getting the specs on the engine. We don't include everyone, but we include the important ones that are really committed to Mustang. And whether you're John Hennessy or anyone in between, we design the vehicle so that people can customize it and make it themselves, including performance. And uh, that won't change. Like every Mustang should feel like it's for the owner. I can't add to that. He's nailed it. <laughs> I will say, though, that Mustang has always been a canvas that people can express their feelings with. They can make it into whatever they okay, want. Okay, so make let's it. have fun with that. Sonny and Cher's Mustang. Go for it. Do you have you I seen don't pictures? Have the picture. I, I don't oh, yeah, have the picture. So you got to yes. describe Sonny and Cher's so personalized Mustang. Sonny and Cher each got their own Mustang and they gave it to George Barris, the famous guy who made the Batmobile and all these other custom cars. And they had them customized, I mean, fur-covered steering wheels. Uh, you look at them and you kind of want to throw up in your throat a little bit. It's like, Ugh! And we have a famous photo in the archives of the two of them sitting on their customized Mustangs. So you'll have to paint this picture of a very skinny, sunny Bono and Cher sitting on Mustangs. And they made a reverse concave front of the cars. So it's just crazy looking cars. Yeah. And they drove them everywhere. Yes. Are there any other like unique Mustangs like that that come to mind for you? Well, the Shelby ones, because each yeah. and every Shelby Mustang was in essence personalized. I got a yes. picture right in front of me right now of Jim Morrison yeah. in his GT350. Yes. And that's the only car he ever owned. And he called it Blue Lady. I mean, yeah. you're identifying yourself with your car when you drive a Mustang. And there aren't too many cars that you can say that about. You Bronco, yeah, F Series, true, and Mustang, true, and Steve McQueen's green GT, 
Mustang that he modified and defined, I mean, that that was a pretty special one too. And I mean, I don't know if there's a more iconic Mustang than Steve McQueen's Mustang. Maybe the Mach 1 that James Bond drove in Diamonds oh. Are Forever. Oh, right? yes. Going sideways yeah. through the parking lot. Remember that yeah. one? Yes. Yeah. You know, what's other cool about personalized Mustang is how about its history and music? and the music video of Motown and yeah. at the Rouge plant, you know, singing a music video early one in the middle of the production line, still going. It's a famous story. Yeah. Martha and the Vandells, Barry Gordy, who had worked at Ford on the line, but got him into the assembly line as building Mustangs to record the video. What, I'm going blank on the name of the Yeah. I actually created a music playlist on Spotify that has 50 videos that feature Mustangs. And you know it's been viewed 14 billion times, really? these different videos. Taylor Swift, Justin Bieber. I mean, just a who's who of anybody that, because they put the Mustangs there because the Mustang means right. something in the video itself. This one is from Ron in Kent, Ohio. The Mustang has an iconic sound. Do you engineer the car to keep that sound through all the different generations? How is that done? And what about electric? Does an electric Mustang sound like a gas-powered Mustang? Okay, so there's a lot in that question. The answer is absolutely. Sound is essential, but it will change over time because the engine technology changes. So these iconic Mustang sound you hear today is very intentional by the company, and we actually engineer it. In fact, some of the special versions of our Mustang, you can tune from the steering wheel different levels of sound or volume of sound. There's a sport exhaust sound on the GT500. There's a track one, and there's a quiet one. If you want to go through your neighborhood and maybe you're coming home at two in the morning, you want to up, upset your neighbor, you can actually change the sound. But we have a sound in all cases, and it's consistent across all the vehicles, and it's something that we do intentionally. And one of our sound engineers, one of the Mustangs, recent ones, you know, he showed me he had five or 600 different recordings of Mustang sounds, and he picked the one he felt like got it right for that moment in technology. So the raspy one you hear now, it's much more outspoken than the V8 uh, sound from the 60s. That was a lot of induction noise, you know, when you stand on the accelerator the engine nowadays is really tuned to people outside the car as much as inside the car. On the electric Mustang, I don't think there was one part of the Mustang Mach-E that we debated more than the sound. And where we got to was we felt like the whole car had to have the Mustang swagger and the performance, zero to 60 in lateral and braking that a Mustang GT had. So we wouldn't do the Mach-E if it didn't outperform a Mustang GT. And in many regards, it's just as fast as a GT500 in acceleration. And we spent a lot of time on the sound because that was the hardest part. We came up with a sound and there were a lot of options. I see some companies now manufacturing V8 or modern electric sounds. And we could have done that through the audio system. We did not. Uh, we had the chance to be very rational sound. Well, uh, think of the Jetsons. We didn't do that either. We spent a lot of time with the Porsche uh, Toycan, who had struggled with this problem before us, frankly. And we came up with our own solution, which was 
you know, a loud sound from the gear noise. So it had to be authentic. It wasn't manufactured. It came from the components in the Mustang Mach-E. And it's quite different than the V8 raspy, you know, kind of, kind of outspoken noise. But it's all intentional. So I would say there's as much work done on the sound of the current Mustang, electric or internal combustion engine, as there is the design. Ted and I will be back in a moment for more of your questions. I'm Jim Farley, and this is Drive. Welcome back to Drive. Today, Jim welcomes Ford archivist Ted Ryan to take your questions about the iconic Ford Mustang. You can visit Jim's Twitter feed at jimfarley98 for a special thread of photos featuring the items Jim and Ted mention in this episode. Now, here's Ted Ryan with the next question. Jim, here's one from Andrew in Alexandria, Louisiana. Hi, this is Andrew, a longtime Ford fan. Will we see a Mach 1 in the S650 platform? We're not going to go there, but we have lots of really cool Mustangs up our sleeve. And so we're going to launch with one, and we won't finish there. Jim, here's one from Mark in Birmingham, Michigan. What is your favorite movie moment in a Mustang? You go first, Ted, because you've seen them all. <laughs> you know. My wife hates watching movies with me because I'll literally pause it and take pictures when I see a Mustang or a Bronco or any Ford product on screen in a critical moment. So my, I'm a James Bond fanatic, so my favorites mm-hmm. are the Bonds. So Goldfinger, and it's a cool story with Goldfinger. It was one of the first Mustangs sent to Europe, and it was sent to Allen Man Racing. They raced the cars. There were three of them. It won the Tour de France, so Mustang, a few uh-huh. short months after its intro, won a major rally race. And then they derallied it and gave it to the producers uh-huh. of Goldfinger in September of 1964 mm-hmm. or so. The story within the story, but then we talked about it earlier. James Bond on a Mach 1 on sideways driving through the streets of Las Vegas is a classic moment. For me, it's Frank Bullitt. Like that corduroy jacket, 70s. He's like the epitome of style. His girlfriend is driving a Porsche 356, and he's like this really crisp detective and the bad guys are driving a Hemi, black Hemi Charger. And he's in this lightweight green Mustang. And he's a great driver. And at that point, Steve McQueen is actually driving a lot of his time professionally. He's doing the movie Le Mans. He, you know, he's thinking about it. And he's thinking about whether he wants to be an actor or a professional race car driver. And I think that car, to me in the movies really was as big a character as Steve McQueen was. One other honorable mention would be Eleanor and Gone in 60 yeah. Seconds in both iterations. You know, the yes. coveted Shelby car that yes. is the North Star for these auto thieves. There's so many movies. It's appeared in, as part of my job, I got the coolest job in the world, Jim. I actually have been researching how many movies Mustang has appeared in. Yeah. And TV shows, movies, and music videos almost 10,000 dwarfs any other product in our portfolio. It's just amazing. Because once again, it's the way a producer can express a feeling on screen is by having a Mustang pull up. Ted, let's take another question. Hi, this is Tim from Westbury, New York. I'd like to know what you think makes the Mustang so iconic and why it's so different from other cars. What makes the Mustang different from everything else is that 
it created a category. So you and you've got the people that try to make things like Mustang, but it's beauty, it's styling, it's sporty, and it's an expression of yourself. And with the Mustang, America was coming of age. It's 1964. The baby boomers are there. You've got double incomes. You've got more women going to college. You've got, like I said, 43% of all people that bought Mustangs in 64 were women. And it's a way that you could express yourself as being a Mustang person, being free and open. And what Ford was fortunate to do, and not too many automakers do it, is we kept that same spirit in the car for 60 years. So when you see the new one, that same spirit of openness, freedom, expression will be there. Damn, that's hard to do. Yeah. For me, it's actually the result of what you just said, which is, you said it, free and being yourself. I think of American great iconic design like the Levi's 501, the Apple iPhone. And they're not just consumer products that are great, because they are, but they also leave the customer with a feeling when you use them or wear them. And for me, it all came down to a moment captured best by someone I had never met before. I was the head of Ford of Europe, and I went to meet the King of Spain. And he is driven everywhere. And his father actually inaugurated our Spanish plant. We were the first company to go to Spain to build cars there. So he has a deep connection with Ford. And he, I asked him, you know, what's your greatest automotive experience? I wasn't expecting him to say anything about Ford. I thought it'd be something about Ferrari or whatever. He said, Jim, I went to law school in Boston. And before I went back to my country where I knew that I would have all this responsibility and never really drive again, I flew to Los Angeles. I rented a V8 Mustang and I drove up the coast of California to San Francisco. And I'm, I'm sitting there, it's the King of Spain, and he's telling me that the coolest automotive thing he's ever done is driving a convertible Mustang. And I asked him what was so cool, and he said exactly what you did, Ted. He's like, because I was just myself. It was with my girlfriend, wife now, and we were just on a road trip, and we didn't have a schedule, and I've never lived my life like that since. I thought that captured what our version of the 501 genes feels like. I have three sons, and they would argue over who was going to get to drive the Mustang. My son number two actually drove it to college for six months, and he would get out of the car and he would strut because you feel different when you've gotten out of a Mustang. You've got you pulling up. We have one more question from a listener in California. Hey, Jim, it's Jay Leno. Besides being on hold for half an hour, how long are you guys going to continue to make the V8? Thank you, Jay. I can actually picture you asking that question. I would say we are going to make it as long as we can. I mean, when we create a Mustang, one of the most important things is that we have an, not just a V8, an affordable V8. That's part of the essence of the car. It's part of the concept of the car. It is absolutely the defining execution of the Mustang. I'll go even further. It's part of the essence of Ford Motor Company. We created the affordable V8 
1932, and it's been part of our DNA ever since. We'll caution on one thing. The original Mustangs, we sold a million of them in the first two years, and the majority of those were only V6s. You know, it's a car that can be anything to anybody because we're delivering a promise of sporty, stylish, beauty, open road. So it doesn't have to have a V8 to do that. You can choose whatever option you want. Ted, thank you so much for joining us. You know, at this moment when we're introducing a new Mustang, I can't think of anyone I would rather have this conversation with than you. And I can't think of anyone who Ford or Mustang fans would rather have a conversation with than you. Because you have it all, you see it all every day. And most of all, thank you for keeping us honest to what Mustang is really about. Thank you for having me. I've got the best job in the world. I can't believe he pays me to do what I do, but he does. (laughs) Well done. Drive is produced by Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom of Magnificent Noise for Spotify. Chris Curtin is consulting producer. Our production staff includes Julia Knott and Eva Walchover, with help from Lori Arpin, Jeff Nelson, Josh Malofsky, Darnell Macon, and Mark Truby. Special thanks to Liz Kellogg and Matt Lieber. Jim Farley is the host, and this is Drive.